On today's episode of the Forgiven Nutritionist podcast, I'm talking with Dr. Deborah Muth. She's a certified naturopathic doctor, and she started out as a nurse in 1995 and completed her degree as a nurse practitioner in 1998. She then completed her doctorate in naturopathic medicine in 2001 and became board certified. She founded Serenity Healthcare in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Serenity is one of Midwest's foremost integrative clinics providing care for patients worldwide. Dr. Muth has specialized in treating toxic mold, chemical sensitivity, hormones, which is what our topic was last time she was on, but she's also specialized training in Lyme disease, which is our topic today. Here's a clip from today's show. And you mentioned that it can um, show up as dementia. Mm-hmm. So Lyme, we know, can cross what's called the blood-brain barrier. There was a time in medicine where we believed the blood-brain barrier was sacred and sealed and no infection ever crossed the blood-brain barrier. And now we know differently. And, and we know that because of people who've donated their brains for research who have had Alzheimer's and dementia and things like that. And what they are finding is these bacterias and viruses actually in the brain. And so we know that they can cross the blood-brain barrier and therefore cause neurological symptoms, numbness, tingling, uh, drooping of the face, which we call Bell's palsy. It can cause visual disturbances. It can cause memory loss, short-term and long-term. It can create a very inflamed brain, which can make people not be able to, to function at the level that they want. Um, so the brain is very important for us. We worry quite a bit about that, right? Without our brains, we're nothing. So we want to make sure that the brain is taken care of. And whenever we suspect that this infection may have crossed the blood-brain barrier or became what's called neurological Lyme, you need to do very aggressive treatment if you do not want to go down a path of developing worsening symptoms or potentially Alzheimer's or dementia. Hey everyone, just a quick break to show some gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. Are you looking for a good probiotic? Seed DS1 Daily Symbiotic has both prebiotic and probiotic. It supports digestive health, heart health, skin health, and gut health, including those who suffer with IBS. Their products are clinically studied and third-party tested for quality, and I think you'll be impressed with their eco-friendly packaging. Click the link in the show notes and use my code FORGIVEN for 15% off your first month's supply. Hello, Dr. Deb. Thank you again for joining me, especially so soon after we just recorded last. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, I know I just kind of give you a little introduction, but why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm a naturopathic doctor and a nurse practitioner. I own a clinic in Waukesha, Wisconsin called Serenity Healthcare Center. It is the Midwest's um, largest integrative practice. We treat complex patients. Um, typically, we see patients who've been everywhere and nobody's been able to figure out what's going on with them. We not only can figure out what's going on with them, but we can also get them back to their health the way they want to so they can live their lives again the way they want to. Yeah, that's that's uh, one of the things that I'm now seeing you for and that we're going to talk about today is Lyme disease. Um, and so how did you um, get started with being uh, or doing Lyme disease or getting that as one of your specialties that you kind of really hone in on and help patients with? So I started treating Lyme disease over 20 years ago. 
Um, I had some complex patients. I had a colleague of mine who was in a town called Fond du Lac, who I was referring people to. And they were coming back and they were doing really well, but they were having some weird symptoms. And I thought, what is going on? What am I missing? And so I called up my friend and said, okay, what are you doing? And he invited me up to shadow him and spend some time learning from him. And that was my first real introduction to what chronic Lyme is or can be. And um, he said, you need to go train with a friend of mine and his name is Dr. Horowitz. And in the Lyme community, most people know Dr. Horowitz these days. He is a guru in Lyme. He's out in New York State. And so I went and I spent several weeks with him and trained and came back and started treating patients in Wisconsin. And like most people, you start to realize like, wait a minute, I sound like that. Oh, wait, I sound like that. And you start testing yourself. And lo and behold, I had Lyme back then as well. I was not as sick as most people, thank goodness. But I remember exactly when I was infected and it, and it would have been about seven years before I knew um, anything about Lyme disease at that point. And so I, I learned very quickly what Lyme can do from an acute standpoint and a chronic standpoint. And unfortunately, I got infected again uh, two years ago with Lyme and treated myself again. And, and as you go through these processes and you work with patients, you learn so much about yourself and the disease and how it presents and how different it is. And so that's how I got started treating Lyme. And you kind of start to see it everywhere after a while. And Lyme patients will tell you that too. Like once they identify themselves, they can tell it's in their friend Susie and their mother-in-law and their father-in-law. And before you know it, you start to think everybody has Lyme. Um, but Lyme is very prevalent. We have, according to the CDC, and these numbers are going to be lower than what is accurate, but according to the CDC, there's 300,000 new cases of Lyme disease in the U.S. every year. And those are clearly only the ones that test positive, but there are a lot of people who right. don't test positive right away. They might take six or 12 months before they test positive. I've seen people that take five years to test positive. So those numbers are skewed as a result of some of that. Um, um, what is Lyme and how do we get it? Because I, I think that some yeah. people have an idea, but um, maybe there's some misconceptions out there too. So why don't you start with Absolutely. some of the basics like that? Mm -hmm. So Lyme disease is what we call a spirochetal infection. It's a spirochete. So it is the kissing cousin to syphilis. It is a corkscrew shape and it enters your body via a tick bite, but it can also enter your body from other insects as well. We know black flies, mosquitoes, uh, mm -hmm. sand fleas, they all carry what we call tick-borne disease. So it may not be specifically Lyme. It can be, but it doesn't always have to be. It can be what we call a co-infection. Those are things uh, like Bartonella, Babesia, anaplasmosis, auriculosis. There's a lot of different co-infections that go along with Lyme, and they all get kind of labeled under this big heading called tick-borne disease. And most people will think that it always has to come from a tick, but it does not always have to come from a tick. Some people will get acute symptoms when they get bit, and some people get no symptoms immediately. So in traditional medicine, the first thing that's asked when somebody gets bit by a tick is, do you know if it was a deer tick or a wood tick? Because they're different. 
And the conventional world believes that wood ticks do not carry Lyme. In the alternative world, there's some controversy as to whether or not that is the case. Then they'll ask, do you have a bullseye rash? And a bullseye rash looks like a bullseye target. And it's red on the outside and a little lighter on the inside. And only about 20% of the population that gets exposed to a tick bite that carries Lyme will have a bullseye rash. The rest of the population will not. They might get something that looks like a spider bite. It might be raised, it might be red, but it won't be what we call the classic bullseye rash. And so oftentimes those patients will be dismissed and told they don't have Lyme because they did not have the bullseye rash. The other thing that occurs when people get bit by a tick and get infected is they can get flu-like symptoms. So you can get a headache, you can get a fever, um, achiness, that kind of thing. And it can last for a very short time. It can only last for two to three days. So you just assume that you got an infection, wasn't a big deal, summer cold, whatever. And then you go on your way. And if you don't see the rash or other symptoms don't progress, you dismiss it and don't ever think of it as being Lyme disease exposure. Yeah. I know when, um, I had gotten, uh, I had acquired a bite or uh, suddenly I woke up and I had a large red bump on my arm and it was not a bullseye pattern. And um, the center was more red or definitely a darker, deeper pink. Mm-hmm. And then there was um, a lighter pink raised a bit around it as well. And, and it was, it was just right here and it was very swollen and it was very warm to the touch. Mm-hmm. And um, it lasted uh, as soon as I noticed it, um, I called my traditional doctor and, um, went in the next day and yeah, he was very dismissive because it wasn't a bullseye pattern. And, mm-hmm. and I thought to myself, okay, I know that only 20 or 30% get the bullseye, but what about the rest of the people that don't get the bullseye? Couldn't this be the bullseye <laughs> or the non bullseye one? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I was very, I was very sad to, um, when I didn't get at least their traditional testing, at least to me, he could have sent me for the traditional test that they normally run. Um, right. But I, did, I unfortunately didn't even get that opportunity to have that done. Yeah. And that's pretty common. That's a common pattern where they will not even order a Lyme screen. And if the Lyme screen is negative, nothing ever goes beyond that. And so in In our world, we do a Lyme screen, we do an ELISA, we do a PCR, we do a Western blot, we do something called an immunoblot. Sometimes we'll do an IFA. There's there's many different tests that you can run to determine if somebody has Lyme disease. And every, there is no perfect test, right? There's nothing that's 100%. They're all, even in our alternative world at best, we're maybe 50 to 60% accurate. So the more testing methods you use, the more likely you are to end up getting somebody who has Lyme disease have a positive. Now, to some people, that's going to sound like, well, you're just fishing to find a false positive. Not necessarily. There are very few false positive Lyme tests. In the traditional world, though, we've all been taught that if the Lyme screen is positive, you then do what's called a Western blot. And if the Western blot is negative, then your test is a false positive and the person doesn't need to be treated. And I think there's been a lot of um, harm to people from that philosophy 
because I see them 10 to 12 years later after they had that initial testing and were told it was negative. And now they're, they're having a lot of complications with symptoms and they've been sick ever since that bite. And most people will tell you, I got bit here and I've never been the same since. Well, I know that um, a lot of doctors call um, Lyme disease the great imitator. And so Correct. maybe you can tell us why they call it the great imitator. And yeah. maybe some people can think twice about some of the diagnoses they've been given and maybe mm-hmm. Lyme is really at the root cause of it. Absolutely. So it is known as the great imitator because it mimics a lot of different diseases. If you were to look up all the symptoms of chronic Lyme and syphilis, they would mirror each other. That's why we say it's the kissing cousin to syphilis. The other reason, because the symptoms can be very similar. It is not unusual for Lyme to present like an autoimmune disease. So people who will get diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis but they're told they have a, a seronegative is what we call it, a seronegative rheumatoid arthritis, meaning that their lab tests are not positive for rheumatoid arthritis, but they present with all the symptoms, the swelling in the joints, the pain, the heat, the nodules, and then they're put on immunosuppressive drugs and their symptoms tend to get worse. That would be a very big red flag to us that they really don't have rheumatoid arthritis. They have some bacterial thing that's causing their symptoms to be present for them. MS is another uh, disease that can oftentimes mimic Lyme disease. If you have what's called neurological Lyme, meaning that the Lyme disease has triggered neurological symptoms, it can mimic MS and even cause white matter in the brain where we see that on MRI and Typically, the radiologists will comment in the notes that this may be bacterial driven. They can usually tell very, very well if it's MS versus something else. And whenever that comment is there, that's a big red flag for us that there's something infectious going on that's triggering that. So Lyme can mimic a lot of different diseases. And there's over 55 strains of Lyme that we know of today. So some drive neurological symptoms, some drive traditional joint symptoms, some cause headaches and blurred vision and memory issues. So there's a whole host of symptoms that someone can get. And then when we add all those other co-infections, those tick-borne diseases along with them, they can mimic a lot of different symptoms. For instance, Bartonella is a really good one because it oftentimes creates anxiety, OCD behavior, bipolar behavior, severe headaches, um, memory issues. And once that infection is treated, those symptoms go away. It's a lot like the world of pans pandas where strep, a, a traditional strep throat infection causes OCD and anxiety and depression and things like that. And if it's left untreated, they, the person will go down this mental health route, but they never get better because they haven't treated the underlying cause. Um, what are some other um, of the strains or viruses that they can, people can get that maybe act like something else? So you can get other infections, tick-borne diseases, that can mimic neurological diseases like ALS, MS, I mentioned already, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, long 
long-term chronic exposure to Lyme that's left untreated can present that way. But sometimes you'll get acute symptoms like that. And when those symptoms come on abruptly where people can't remember or think, and if they're older, they could easily be diagnosed with dementia and really have an underlying infection instead. So it's very common. Um, osteoarthritis is another one that people get diagnosed with. Fibromyalgia is top of the list. That is very common to get diagnosed with when they have an underlying infection, whether it's bacterial or viral driven. Um, Epstein-Barr, which is the virus that causes mono, is often found to be the trigger for fibromyalgia symptoms. What, what are some things that they can then do or steps that they can take to see if maybe they do have Lyme? Is there a good time Absolutely. that they should go visit their practitioner or should they wait a certain amount of time? If you have a suspected tick bite, you do not want to wait. You want to get in right away preferably with what we call a Lyme literate practitioner. So somebody who understands Lyme and believes that Lyme actually exists. I, I'm appalled at the fact that I still see patients today who have seen me who've been told by their practitioner that Lyme doesn't exist. Or in Wisconsin, Lyme is very prevalent. But I had a practitioner last week tell one of our patients that Lyme is only in the northern part of the state. It's not in the southern part of the state. I'm sorry, we have deer all over the state and people travel all over. Our state is an endemic state. And yet you're telling somebody that Lyme doesn't exist in your county. I can show you that every single county right. in our state has tested positive. So you want to make sure that you're with somebody that understands Lyme because even if I, I've seen this too, even if they have a positive Lyme test with a positive Western blot, their practitioner may still not treat them. And for a while, and this has changed a little bit, for a while, um, doctors were only giving one antibiotic pill, one pill, not, not even one pill for five days, one pill. And they thought that was going to kill Lyme disease. It does not. Um, you need a minimum of 21 days of antibiotics. And oftentimes you may need more than one antibiotic, depending on what other things you were infected with when that tick bit you. And so you, you want to make sure you understand exactly what's going on. So you want to be with a practitioner that knows how to treat this so that you don't end up with long-term complications down the road. And since you brought up um, some medications, is this their standard, like one medication will help any of the Lyme disease infections um, or does it vary from infection to infection or? Great question. So it does vary. You, most of the time, what is recommended is something called doxycycline. Unless you're allergic to a tetracycline, then they will give you something else. What we know from studies, and they are Petri dish studies, but they still are studies, that doxycycline does not really kill the infection of Lyme disease. It stops the replication of it. So it doesn't replicate in your body as quickly, but it doesn't completely kill it. So oftentimes you're going to need more than one antibiotic. And depending on what strain of Lyme disease you have, or if there are other infections, the co-infections that go along with that, 
you may need a different antibiotic to completely kill that. Uh, for instance, a good in indication is a co-infection called Babesia. Babesia is a parasitic infection that oftentimes people can be infected with when they're exposed to Lyme. So if I was to only give doxycycline, it would not touch the, the Babesia. And that person will walk around with that infection potentially for years before somebody triggers on the fact that they have something other than Lyme disease as well. You do give the doxycycline um, and they go through their course um, or whatever medication it is and they go through their course. Um, I'm assuming then you have to retest. And do you retest on the on a regular basis after that for a little uh, for a certain amount of time, or is it just the one retest after that, and then everyone is assumed that they're okay for a certain amount of time? That's a great question. So we do retest, and we want to see a negative test, and we want not only that negative test, we want patients to be seventy to eighty percent symptom free. And they can maintain that for a minimum of three months before we will say, okay, you're, you're good. However, we also recognize that since Lyme disease is a spirochete and it is very similar to syphilis, and we know that syphilis never leaves the body and it always needs to be treated, there are some cases of Lyme disease that are very similar to that. And so if, for instance, somebody gets another infection, gets a new bite, something happens and their immune system declines a little bit, that infection may come out again and you may need to do some other treatment after that, whether it's an herbal treatment or a homeopathic or another course of antibiotics, you could end up having to do that more than once. So um, recently when I was talking with um, some people about um, my recent encounter with the possible tick bite and um, now me getting some treatment for my Lyme, um, some people were telling me stories of, um, and, and I see it on the internet as well. Um, people were concerned that you can also share this, uh, sexually with your partners, your house, mm -hmm. husband, spouse, anything like yep. that. Um, is that something that you can uh, need to worry about? Um, just thinking, I think people are, especially just coming out of COVID, I think people are kind of worried <laughs> that. Yeah. It's something that can be passed on to other individuals. So we know that Lyme disease can be transmitted from mom to unborn baby and has a potential to cause a loss of pregnancy at any point during the pregnancy. That spirochete loves to be in the placenta where the baby gets all its nutrients and oxygen from, and it can cause problems there. There is no clinical study that proves that Lyme disease is sexually transmitted. However, clinically, we do see that partners can test positive. And there's an argument on both sides, which could very well be true, that those partners share the same environment, therefore there could be an exposure and the person didn't know it. What I will tell you what that we see in our practice is we test all partners because we want to know. If both people have it, we don't want there to be the potential for it to be sexually transmitted. And we want to treat both partners. It has been very common for us to see both partners be positive, but only one partner be sick and the other one not have any symptoms. 
So this is a very, very heavily controversial area as to whether or not it can be sexually transmitted. I have talked to doctors that say absolutely hands down, yes. And I've seen other doctors and researchers say, hands down, no, we have no scientific proof of this. Whenever I see that in my world, I say, we don't know. So we can't say yes and we can't say no, but we can say maybe it's possibility. And I think right. for people who are really sick or are concerned, you should take precautions of not transmitting that to a partner. It's not going to be transmitted by, you know, sharing food, things like that. It's going to be transmitted by sharing bodily fluids. Right. Well, that, that's good to know. I think that might put um, some listeners at a little bit of ease that, um, especially, like I said, just coming off the pandemic, um, mm -hmm. I think everyone's a little uh, skittish sometimes when it comes to certain things. And, and especially with the internet nowadays, unfortunately, there's anything and everything out there on the web. So <laughs> mm -hmm. um, absolutely, that will help put some people's mind a little bit at ease. Yeah. So how does Lyme, um, you talked a little bit about how it can affect the body and some, some things that it can present itself at, as like rheumatoid arthritis, but um, what about um, the brain also? What kinds of things can it do in the brain? I know you mentioned that it can um, show up as dementia. Mm -hmm. So Lyme, we know, can cross what's called the blood-brain barrier. There was a time in medicine where we believed the blood-brain barrier was sacred and sealed and no infection ever crossed the blood-brain barrier. And now we know differently, and, and we know that because of people who've donated their brains for research who have had Alzheimer's and dementia and things like that. And what they are finding is these bacterias and viruses actually in the brain. And so we know that they can cross the blood-brain barrier and therefore cause neurological symptoms, numbness, tingling, uh, drooping of the face, which we call Bell's palsy. It can cause visual disturbances. It can cause memory loss, short-term and long-term. It can create a very inflamed brain, which can make people not be able to, to function at the level that they want. Um, so the brain is very important for us. We worry quite a bit about that, right? Without our brains, we're nothing. So we want to make sure that the brain is taken care of. And whenever we suspect that this infection may have crossed the blood-brain barrier or became what's called neurological Lyme, you need to do very aggressive treatment if you do not want to go down a path of developing worsening symptoms or potentially Alzheimer's or dementia. And if, if somebody suspects that they have Lyme or if they have been diagnosed with Lyme, whether it's, you know, three months after they've been bitten or three years, um, is there a time where you ever think that it's, it's too late and to not bother with trying to get tested or treatment? Um, or is, do you just say, go for it and, and start no matter when it is? Because it can be, do you think that it's something that can be um, not always reversed, but definitely addressed and corrected and fixed to really help the patient go a complete 180? Absolutely. I mean, we've treated patients that have been infected 15, 20 years prior. Um, there is going to be damage that we cannot reverse in cases where people have had it a really long time. The hardest part is when somebody presents with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, 
and we suspect Lyme and they test positive. At that point, typically there's so much neurological damage done that the likelihood of reversing them is minimal to nothing. However, anything prior to that, so anywhere along the spectrum that you are before that, in my opinion, is worth treating, is worth trying. You know, we may only be able to reduce your symptoms 50 or 60%, but for some people, 50 to 60% would give them their life back. And it's better than the quality yeah. of life they have at that moment. So I tell people to try. It can't hurt you to try. We may not get all these symptoms removed, but it doesn't hurt to try. And I would say test and start treating and see what happens. So if someone does want to get tested, I know you said before that there's no perfect test, but what kind of tests do you recommend um, or hope that the listener will um, try to shoot for at least to start with to see, to get kind of a good baseline if maybe they should continue investigating if they really do have Lyme? Yeah, we use a company called Igenix. They're out of California. They are a research company and they are, in my opinion, the best company to test for Lyme. So I would push to get that testing. You will not get that testing with your traditional doctor. They will not know who it is or what it is. And if they look it up, they'll be like, they're just a research facility. They don't really, their tests don't matter. So if you can't get that from your traditional doctor, at least ask them for a Lyme screen and a Western blot. And you want the Western blot regardless of how the Lyme screen test turns out. If the Lyme screen is negative, we still want to see the Western blot because the Western blot gives us more information to determine if you do have Lyme or been exposed, or if maybe you've been exposed to something else um, that isn't Lyme, but is a different bacteria or virus. And we can see that on the Western blot, or it leads us in that direction to start questioning that. Well, that's good. Hopefully um, some of my uh, listeners will kind of take a little bit of a pause and, and ask their practitioner um, and if they're maybe their current doctor doesn't want to test, like mine did not, um, maybe they will find uh, someone else who does want to test them um, and steer them towards getting um, some of those tests done for a little more accurate, at least to get a baseline, because you've got to start somewhere, you know. And, and, right. and like you said, I always try to tell my clients, too, that um, you're definitely not going to be any worse off than you are now. You can only get better. So why not try to get a better? There is a website called ilads.org, I-L-A-D-S.org. And they will have a list of all of the Lyme literate trained practitioners in the country. Um, and you can find somebody that's close to you to work with. I will definitely put a link to that in the show notes as well. So I'm glad you mentioned that. There's actually, a, um, I was recently on that website as well. And there's a lot of good um, information that you can get also. Just about maybe people are only familiar with, um, you know, growing up, I was just always exposed to the traditional tick, the larger ones. Um, but when I moved to where I'm, I'm at now, just south of Milwaukee, um, we have, you know, just over an acre and a half. And there's definitely deer ticks all around here. And this summer, um, on, on myself and as well as my dogs, I've taken a couple of them off. So it kind of gives you a good idea as to what different ticks look like. What do you say are the most common Lyme diseases that go along with Lyme? So the most common diseases that we see that go along with tick-borne disease in general 
So that could be Lyme disease, Bartonella, Babesia, anaplasmosis, any of those. And those are the most common infections where people will test positive. Rheumatoid arthritis, hands down, is the first one. Osteoarthritis, OCD, anxiety, uh, fibromyalgia is way up at the top of that list. And then I would say MS. Those are kind of like the big six that you will see most commonly occur after a, a Lyme uh, exposure that has not been treated. Now, they don't typically happen immediately. A lot of these diseases don't happen for several years after that exposure. And that's why it's difficult to trace it back to Lyme disease because people forget, right? They don't think about that tick bite and they didn't pay that much attention. They didn't get that sick. It wasn't a big deal. And it's not until they get diagnosed with one of these other diseases that they start looking and researching what could be the cause or how do I treat it? And they stumble upon the fact that, wait, maybe this could be Lyme disease. And then they start putting the pieces together and putting the timeline together and start figuring it out. Where I, when I lived in Ohio, there was um, a young, he was actually very young at the time. Um, he was diagnosed with Rocky Mountain spotted fever mm-hmm. and it really did. I mean, it hit him hard. He was a completely different um, child, unfortunately. I think since then, um, because now I have since moved back to Wisconsin, but um I know that they had a lot of uh, struggles with um, him and his recovery. And I mean, finally getting diagnosed was a big deal already. But um, and luckily they happened to get a, a dog who anytime he would seize would come get the mom before he started having seizures. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a, a blessing, too. But yeah, they can definitely um, really impact your life. You know, because I, I was diagnosed years ago, which I don't have now, but with re- rheumatoid arthritis. And so I know what having something like that is like, mm-hmm. and which is awful in itself. But then, um, and that can be very debilitating as well. Um, people don't really realize how debilitating, you know, a Lyme disease or an infection from Lyme can really, really um, affect every aspect of your life a lot bigger and more than you know. Absolutely. So when you first get Lyme disease, or or how long does it take to kick in? um, Or how fast can you get symptoms? Or is it really just dependent on the person and their overall health to begin with? It depends on the person and it also depends on what infections that tick is carrying. So some people will get symptoms typically within 48 hours. And that would be the fever, the chills, the muscle pain, kind of flu-like symptoms. Think of it that way. And then the bullseye rash. Other people may not ever get symptoms like that. And they may present months or years later with joint pain. So it varies quite a bit. Um, It doesn't necessarily matter, like... If you have a great immune system and you're really healthy and you eat this natural diet, you won't get sick. It it doesn't work like that. You could have the perfect lifestyle and get bit by a tick and still get sick. And you could be the worst eater and drinker and all of that and not really have any symptoms. Um, It really varies. And and part of it is what we call this, this load on the body, right? The more things you have exposure to, the more things that you might have going on, the more stress you have, 
it all lowers your body's immune system. And over time, the these infections and things can lower your immune system and cause more problems for you. And then you can see symptoms come out. And sometimes it's just people not paying attention to the symptoms either. They're busy and we can all write mm-hmm. them off, right? Oh, I, I didn't sleep well. I'm working too much. I'm not eating right. Oh, I overdid. I played pickleball. I played basketball. I did this. That's why I'm sore. Well, you know, I'm 40. I should feel this way. We can justify a lot of the symptoms that we get from Lyme disease and push it out very far. And so that's the other reason why sometimes we don't see people present with symptoms until those symptoms all start stacking on top of each other. And now you have headaches and ear ringing and jaw pain and gut issues and Bell's palsy. And it's not just one joint that's sore. It's all your joints that are sore. And now they're swollen and and now you're starting to take hold because it's like, wait a minute, this is a little too much for just being my age or just overdoing. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying too that um, no matter how people want to slice it, they can't fight off Lyme naturally either. It's very difficult. So we have two camps these days in the Lyme world. Those that say absolutely you have to use antibiotics. Those that say absolutely not, you cannot use antibiotics. You'll deeply see the spirochete and you'll never get better. And I, I think that's too easy to say because Lyme is so complicated. I think there are some people that need to have antibiotics, especially those with a neurological condition. There are some people that might be able to get away with an herbal but we don't know what's going to happen five years down the road from that. In my opinion, Mm -hmm. I think there should be a combination. There should be an acute treatment of antibiotics along with herbs to cover because they're more broad spectrum. They cover different things. And then you don't have to use antibiotics as long. But I think the... I think patients get the best results when they do a combination of two together. Well, since you mentioned herbs, like what kind of herbs um, would people benefit from from using? Because I don't think that people ever think about diet as being part of treatment for Lyme. So what kind mm-hmm. of herbs can yeah. people maybe add to their <laughs> to their diet? Yep. So common herbs that we use for Lyme disease are cat's claw. The other name for it is cemento. You can use olive leaf and garlic and oregano and teasel root. Um, there's a product line called Nutramedics that can be used. And we use things like Takuna and Banderol and Mora. And these are herbs that come from the rainforest and they're commonly used in Lyme treatment. Um, and then, of course, things like vitamin C and, and high dose vitamin D and a good diet. Like you want to eliminate sugar from your diet as much as you can. That really does help and keep inflammatory foods out of your diet as much as you can. So if you could avoid dairy and avoid gluten, you know, even 85 to 90% of the time, that's going to make a big difference for people. Yeah, that's one thing I try um, whenever I have a client, I, I try to drive home the fact to them too, that literally any infection, it doesn't matter what you have, if it's just a common cold, if it's the COVID, if it's, you know, the flu, uh, Infection feeds on sugar. Absolutely. You know, the cleaner your diet can be, the more efficient your body is going to run. 
and the better you're going to fight off the infection of, of any kind. So that is truly important. And, and having a clean diet as much as you can and keeping the chemicals out, you know, if, if you can't afford all organic, which is getting very hard to do these days, you know, follow the dirty dozen and the clean 13 and take those foods that are the, the most toxic and try to do those organic as much as you possibly can. So I know before you touched on uh, something, and I'm wondering if maybe it has to do with, I know some doctors are big on believing about the persister cells. Um, mm-hmm. Is that what, um, when you were talking about um, some people fall into the camp that the, the antibiotics aren't going to get kill it and it's still going to kind of, it sounds like they think it's still going to linger in your system and it's just going to come back anyways. It is. So persister cells can cause people to have a longer term infection and, and you have to be more aggressive when that happens. And that's where sometimes you'll see people use multiple different antibiotics to try to get at those persister cells. Um, and we also know that Lyme takes different shapes. So it can be an S shape or an L shape or a C shape. And it has what call, is called a biofilm. So if you don't brush your teeth for a little bit and you get that little film on your teeth, that's a biofilm. Mm-hmm. That can also go around the bacteria and can protect it and create a shell around it so that when you give something that's antimicrobial, it can't get into the cell and actually kill the bug itself. It, it just kind of hits that wall and can't get anywhere. And so sometimes you have to use things to strip away that biofilm to get to the cell to kill it in the first place. So it's a very complicated case sometimes, especially the longer people have had Lyme, the more likely they are to have these kinds of things. If you can get treatment early, you're less likely to have to deal with these kinds of things down the road. Well, and hopefully people, like I said, if they have any question or have been thinking like, why do I have my rheumatoid arthritis? Or, oh, I wonder if there's anything I could do for my MS. Maybe this will get them to go get tested. Start now. Um, before things maybe get worse. Exactly. Um, So once you have Lyme, um, it sounds like some of it can go away, um, but Mm -hmm. some of it um, maybe you'll have forever. Is that maybe just because of the damage that can sometimes happen to, let's say, your neurological issue, that maybe something neurologically had happened to you, or is it something that is um, more in the actual infection is still always going to be with you? Or does it just depend on the type of line that you had? Great question. Um, and it can be yes to all of those. So I'll, I'll take them a little bit at a time. So sometimes Lyme, Lyme can create arthritis in the joints. And if it damages the joints, the, do- the joint is j- damaged and we can't repair that necessarily, right? Unless we're going to do things like stem cell injections and maybe ozone therapy and things like that, we can help reverse some of that, but it's not going to go away completely. So sometimes you're left with those lingering problems because of the damage that Lyme created in the first place. Some people can have chronic ongoing Lyme and for a variety of reasons in their health, they can't clear the infection. And they're gonna always need to be on some form of antimicrobial therapy, whether it's antibiotics or herbs, to keep that infection at bay. And once they keep the infection at bay, their symptoms are under better control or you know, 80% eliminated and they're good. Other people, there's just there if there's been a lot of neurological damage, 
that neurological damage as we speak today can be very difficult, if at all reversible. Now, there are new things coming out every single day to help people reverse neurological damage that we can try to utilize, but we don't know if it's going to work for everyone. It's, it's not because nothing ever does work for everyone or who it's going to work for. It'll be a lot of trial and error on that part. Those people who have had Lyme for a very long time and have a lot of symptoms, they're going to be left with some damage. We know that. How much, it's hard to say. What damage, it's hard to say until you start treating them. And you don't know how much work they're going to have to continue to do for the rest of their life to treat so that they don't end up having a lot of these symptoms worsen again. And that's the hardest thing for us to say to people is we don't know. We don't have a magic you know, one to say, you're going to be this and you're going to be that. And we can see this and we can see that. You don't know until you start treating. And the other thing is you don't know what other infections are going to come out until you start treating. So in, in an ideal world, we could test everybody for every infection under the planet. And we can't do that. It's not affordable. And it, there's some things we just can't test for. But there are some symptoms that come out when you start treating that make you suspicious of other infections, other viruses, other bacterias, other parasitic infections and things like that. And that all determines the treatment regimen and the time and what somebody's going to be left with. And I can tell you, I've seen patients that I thought, oh my God, I, I don't think this person's ever going to get better. And lo and behold, two years later, they're better, you know, and, and one of my first patients that I, that I always think about when I talk about this is a patient of mine that came in in a wheelchair and had very little control over her body. And she tested positive for Lyme. And as we progressively treated, she got better. And one day she came walking into our office and bouncing around and I had to take a double take because I didn't recognize her because I was used to seeing her in a wheelchair and now she's bouncing in my office. And it was an amazing transformation and she got her life back. However, three years later, something hit her again and it took her down again and it took her down a different path. And she developed something that we call mast cell activation syndrome or mast cell. And that depleted her immune system, triggered other things. And she's still functionable, but not to that same level that she was that day I saw her walk in my office. And that's the problem we're seeing today is a lot of these infections are triggering other underlying things that make it more complicated to treat. And the longer you wait, the more inclined it is for them to trigger different things to make it more difficult to treat. Well, and I'm glad that you um, had mentioned uh, a little bit, gave the listener a little bit of a time frame in there too, because in the days of um, Amazon, we all want things now, either yes. the same day or the next day. And so unfortunately, life does not work that way. And even though the body can heal and it can um, really work magic, marvelous things, um, it's good for people to know and get a good dose of reality that sometimes the struggle is a little bit longer and it can take a couple of years, but things can definitely happen. You just have to stick with it and be persistent. If you've been sick for five years or more, it's going to take more than five years for you to get better. If you've been sick for a year, about a year to two years, you're looking at about three to five years of treatment. And if you've been sick under a year, 
you can look to 12 to 18 months of treatment before you're better. That's a, usually a good rule of thumb. Not always, but it, it catches like 80% of right. the population in that group. Well, and I think some people, just when they get that an- that kind of answer, um, mm-hmm. it gives them something to look forward to at least. You know, right. um, but, you know even though, yes, it, for example, 18 months, okay, uh, let me think. Okay, I got 16 more months to go. And then you never know, maybe it'll take 13 months or maybe it'll take 20 months, but at least they have, yeah. at least for me, I'm the type of person, at least I like to have some kind of small answer or a guideline, I guess. So maybe that'll help people get some exactly. kind of idea as well. So what are some things that people can do to prevent Lyme disease? Um, not just um, when they're camping, because maybe some people don't go camping and maybe that's what people think. The only thing you can get Lyme disease is when you go camping. But maybe yeah. just in their own yard, what are some things that people can really do to prevent it? Lime is everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're in a city or if you're out in the woods. If you have grass and you see deer, lime is there. Just know that. Um, so common things like spraying your yard. Uh, Cutters actually makes a really nice organic fogger. And you can fog your grass so that if you're going to be outside, you fog it. It lasts for eight or 10 hours, something like that. Um, that works really well. Definitely using essential oils. Um, there's a product called Tixinol, which is a really great essential oil formulation. And they have one that you apply directly on your skin. So when you go outside, you apply it first on your skin. And you really want to make sure you're applying it like on your ankles and your feet, because that's usually where you're going to be in the grass. And that's oftentimes where things come up. I will tell you, I had a house in Palmyra, Wisconsin, and we used to stand in our driveway. And if it was a windy day, you could look down on your shirt and there'd be 10 ticks on you. They would literally come out of the trees when it was windy out. And I told this to Dr. Horowitz and he said, impossible, ticks don't climb trees. And I said, well, then tell me how they got in the tree because there's no grass anywhere and it's windy and they're flying out. They do. They climb. So it, they, it can happen. So the more you can be aware and, and look and wear things that don't, ticks don't like the smell of, the better off you are. If you're in the woods, if you're hunting, use permethian, you know, that kind of thing on your clothes. Don't spray that on your skin, but on your clothes, you could do that. And then I always tell people the best thing to do is tick check, tick check, tick check, tick check. When you come in, you go to the bathroom. Drop your door, drawers to the floor and look at everything on your legs, on your ankles, on your feet. Ladies, if you're wearing nail polish, look on your toes because if you're in sandals, these ticks, you know, sometimes we wear colored nail polish that's a little darker and you don't necessarily see them because they can match or get really close to the color of your toenails and you don't see them. So make sure you're really looking at your body, looking over it, because the quicker you get that tick off of you, the less likely you are to get infected by things. Yeah, I know the um, ILADS website says that you can use lemon of eucalyptus, and that'll help prevent tick bites as well. Are you familiar with that as well? Yes. Yeah, lemon eucalyptus is very good. It is a hot oil, so you want to mix it with what we call a carrier oil, so coconut oil or olive oil, and put that on your skin, and they don't like that. And then I usually tell people, too, if you do get a tick bite, make sure you wash it really well with soap and water, and you can apply lavender to that. And lavender has some antiseptic qualities to it as well. And then that helps the bite heal as well. Oh, that's very good to know. I, I, I personally love essential oils. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure a lot of other um, listeners, it's, it's especially it's a good natural product to try as well before trying chemicals. That's for sure. Yes. When I had gone in to see my traditional doctor, he had mentioned that um, as long as I showered within 24 hours, I was fine and I wouldn't have Lyme disease. And um, I was not, uh, I did not study Lyme disease or anything like that in school. And I didn't take, uh, I'm not a Lyme literate doctor or anything like that, but I knew that that was very bad information. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure his thought process was possibly that maybe it would release the tick from me or mm-hmm. it would fall off in the shower and wash away. But um, it, 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 to me, it was not... Um, Excellent information because if the tick had already bitten or was biting me, any pathogens that it shared with me uh, were definitely in my skin already. So that was not going to, the shower itself was not going to help. And once they attach, even showering isn't going to make them go away. I'll I'll tell you, I was in Canada Mm. this spring and um, we were at a, a hunting camp and one of the gentlemen we were with, he took a shower twice a day every day that we were there and we were there for a week and he came out after three days and he had a tick attached to him in a very private area (laughs) and it was already blown up and swollen and he had been showering for twice a day every day so if that was the case that tick would have come off but it wasn't it was attached and they feed on you and until they get large enough, sometimes you can't even see them, especially some of these really small ones. You can't see them until they blow up. So that is that is not accurate information. I always ask my guests, and I ask you this the last time when we talked about hormones, but today since we're talking about Lyme disease, what would your don't miss this moment be for the listener? What would you want them to really uh, take away today? Oh, I would say take away this. If somebody tells you, it can't be Lyme because, and it doesn't make sense to you. Like it can't be Lyme because you're, you're not in a Northern state or you're not in a rural area because maybe you were walking in the park versus in the woods, but the park is wooded or has woods and has grass. If what they're saying to you doesn't make sense, go talk to somebody else. Um, Lyme is extremely controversial. There are a lot of ignorant people, and I don't mean ignorant in a bad way. I mean ignorant as they're just not knowledgeable about Lyme disease. And unfortunately, a lot of healthcare practitioners have been taught the wrong information about Lyme. So if you're talking to somebody about Lyme and it doesn't make sense to you and you're doing some research and you're kind of like, my gut is saying that this could be Lyme, Get with somebody that truly understands Lyme and find out for sure, is it Lyme or is it not? Well, that's good. And, and like I said, I'll put that website address um, in the show notes so they can definitely um, find that. And they can also um, find you as well. So why don't you tell the listener where they can find you or follow you? or So you can find me at serenityhealthcarecenter.com. And I also am on Facebook and Instagram at Serenity Healthcare Center as well. Um, and our clinic is in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Well, thank you so much again for uh, being on today, Dr. Deb. And I really appreciate you uh, taking your time, especially so close to the last time we just talked. Thank you. You too. If you are looking for a trustworthy place to choose all of your supplements, 
Fullscript has 285 different brands to choose from. They did the work for you to check quality standards for all the supplements they carry. These standards are important because they help to ensure a product is safe, effective, and accurately labeled. Fullscript uses third-party companies to provide unbiased assurance that certain quality criteria are met when they add a company or product to their inventory. When you set up an account with Fullscript, use my link and you'll always get 15% off your supplements. If you want to continue learning and hearing all things nutrition for your mind, body, and spirit, click like, subscribe, or favorite me on whatever podcast platform you use. Or you can find me at ForgivenNutritionist.com. This podcast was designed to educate, inspire, and empower you to achieve your health and wellness goals with your current healthcare provider. It is not meant to diagnose or treat any illness or medical condition or take the place of any treatments from your current healthcare providers.